Remain standing for the reading of scripture from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord, brings, the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we open our hearts and thoughts to you now. This is your word. May it speak to us again and afresh this day. This very essential and central passage of the scripture speaks to us again. So we pray, Lord, that you will be with our thoughts, with our hearts, and guide us by your perfect spirit. Amen. In 2005, Jillian McKeith wrote a book called You Are What You Eat. Some of you may have read it. She was a nutritionist, and uh, she had helpful advice for healthy diet and weight loss and made lots of money. Uh, but the title is problematic. We are not what we eat. It suggests that we're just simply bodies, uh, bodily th things, and that uh, and, and forgets that we are a soul and that we have our loves and our virtues and our vices and our beliefs, all of these things that are a part of us. Also, some years ago, David Stoop, a psychologist, wrote a book called You Are What You Think. It was a book about attitude adjustment and, and looking at our self-talk and trying to help us, and there was a good deal of wise advice here as well. But it's not really true that we are what we think. We are more than that. More recently, I wrote a, read a book by Jamie Smith, professor of philosophy at Calvin College, called You Are What You Love. He challenges this modern idea that we are just thinking beings, and certainly that we are just bodies, uh, to a more biblical idea that we are what we love. We are essentially lovers. God is love, and he made us to be those who love. And so we need to pay more attention to what we want, what we desire, and what we worship. Jesus' first question to his disciples who began to follow him was, what do you want? Why are you following me? What we love 
may not be what we think we love. Our behavior, our habits, our affections, our preoccupations reveal our loves. What do we dream about? What are our fantasies? What are our ambitions in life? Today is a special occasion and we're thinking about, about Addison and his, his ordination and we're really looking forward to that. And so these words are addressed partly to him but also for all of us as well. In, in Mark chapter 12, the religious leaders were testing Jesus and bringing questions to him one after another, trying to trip him up. And the Sadducees had just failed in their attempt. And so the Pharisees thought, we'll, let's send our best man forward. The, a, a teacher of the law, an expert in the law, to bring a question to Jesus. And so this young, young man came forward and said this question to Jesus, Master, what is the greatest commandment, the most important commandment? And Jesus responded, uh, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is, love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man who came to him with that question realized that Jesus had answered wisely. And this was, this was the right answer. He was thinking that he would trip him up by forcing him to pick one of the Ten Commandments, perhaps. But Jesus went in a whole different direction to Deuteronomy chapter 6, to this passage that we sometimes, the Jews would call the Shema, uh, based on the Hebrew word for hear, hear, O Israel. And so the, 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 the young lawyer said to Jesus, well done, well said, Master, you have answered correctly. And Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. This passage is one that contains a great confession of faith, not a confession of sin, but a confession of faith, a great commandment and a great commission. It ends with a warning. It's the passage that devout Jews then and now would recite two times daily as the core of their faith and the core of their belief. It starts with a confession of faith, perhaps the smallest and shortest creed ever written. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it's really only four words, Lord, God, Lord, one. God is one and certainly not many. He's not like the gods of the Baals. He's not like the gods of the Egyptians, the Nile River and the sun and the moon god. He's not like the Greek pantheon. The most often repeated commandment in the Bible is the one we read in our confession. No other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before. I remember when Jimmy Carter was in the White House and, and the camera crew apparently followed him to church one day to the Baptist church that he attended and he was teaching a Sunday school class. And he asked the class, uh, do you know what the most often repeated commandment in the Bible is? And they gave some responses and he said, no, it's this one. No other gods before me. He is one. When Jesus makes exclusive claims to, to truth and to God, uh, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, he's simply continuing in this tradition. Those who complain about the Christian, 
Christians making exclusive claims of truth need to understand that the real question is, is Jesus God? Is he a member of the Trinity? Because if he is one with the Father, as he said he was, then surely, just as, as this passage does, it makes exclusive claims for truth. And the amazing thing about this God, this God who is the Lord, is that this same God who is unique and other, who is holy and singular, who is like no other, who is without peers and without class and is incomparable is the same God who entered into our world and took on our flesh and died for our sins and became our savior. And because this is true, this great confession, this great central truth of our faith, this pillar of monotheism, the great commandment follows. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus added the word mind in the Greek context to make it clear that what is intended is our whole being, our whole being with wholeness to enter into this love for God. We might ask the question, what other word would you substitute for this statement, love what else with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? Love power with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Love fame? Love money? Sports? Comfort? Sex? Pleasure? What's on your bucket list? People have been talking to me lately about their bucket list. Do you love your bucket list with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? Even good things like family and spouse and friends and country, when they stand at the beginning of this statement, become idolatry. There's a in Oxford, in the, at the University of Oxford in, in the chapel, there's an Oxford book of prayer that has this written in it by perhaps one student who said, Lord, if I do not love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I know that I will love something else with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because as Jamie Smith said in his book, uh, we are lovers. We will love something. We are worshipers. We will worship something. It may be ourselves, but we were made to love. And we were made to love God and no other. The Lord your God is the only one who deserves and is worthy of this kind of ultimate and wholehearted love. The only one who can be the center of an absorbing interest of our life. Augustine said it this way, Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. And this devotion finds its greatest expression in our love and devotion for the incarnate God, Jesus Christ. Always understanding that we love him because he first loved us. And this wholehearted love for the Lord is, is a gracious invitation to us. It's not intended to be some burden, some grim, toilsome task, but a great gift. What, what better life could you live than one that was, that was characterized by loving the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? 
It's a great calling, the highest calling. And it leads us to a great commission. And that is in verse six through, six through nine, uh, this great confession and this great commandment is not only for you, it's for the next generation. It's for your children and your children's children to hear and to know about as well. I'm so grateful uh, having given, spent my life in, in working with students that Addison has a love for students and that he's devoted to that and he spends time and, and, and really enjoys being with students and talking to them about the truths of God because the next generation needs to hear these truths of our faith as the most important thing in their life. We look at the verbs in, the, in this section, teach them, talk of them, tie them, bind them, write them. Devout Jews of, of that day and some today took this very literally, these, these, these words, and, and, and actually wrote the, the words of the Shema on little tiny scrolls and rolled them up and put them inside boxes, leather boxes called phylacteries, and with a string to tie them on their wrist and in some cases on their forehead so that they would have them with them wherever they went. Unfortunately, this practice became kind of a legalistic, externalized religion instead of one where these things were written on your heart, as the passage suggests. The point is that wherever you go, whether you're at home or at work, whether you're on the road or at the gate or in the marketplace, at school, at your job, whatever it is, take these things with you. Take these central truths with you. Let them be so much a part of your life that your children and the next generation will know that that this is really important. This extent of the love of God for, for us. Pass it on to the next generation. I've been, I've been struck with the psalmist attention to the word generations, where he says, I will make your love and your faithfulness known through all generations. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. And even when I am old and gray, and I love this one now as I get older, even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, until I declare your power to the next generation. And so we say to those gathered here this morning, children, children who are here this morning, children, children, you must come to know this God. You must come to love this God because it's, he's the greatest thing that you could give your life to. And to the students who are gathered here this morning, and young people, young people, students, you must, you must come to know this God. You must come to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, because there's nothing more important in this life. He is the Lord. There is none like him. Some of us have children who have walked away from the faith, and we must keep praying for them. As Paul prayed in Ephesians, to, that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, that they would wake up and see and understand and give themselves to these truths, these central truths. After 35 years within a varsity trying to bring the gospel in a credible and compelling way to the next generation of students, we were always aware, especially at the university level, that we were just one generation away from extinction, always. It is true of any congregation, any local congregation, uh, that we're just really one generation away from extinction if we don't keep 
passing it on to the next generation and inviting new ones and others into this fellowship and into this truth about God. It's true of a nation with a long Christian heritage that can be so quickly lost. I worked uh, for six years in the former communist world in Eastern Europe and in Romania, Bulgaria, former Yugoslavia and Albania. Albania was the last country to fall after, uh, during the, the, the revolutions that were taking place in 1989. And finally in 1991, this Stalinist state that had been so closed off from the rest of the world under the dictatorship of a man named Hosha, Anvar Hosha, finally fell and opened up to the world. It was written into the constitution in Albania, atheism. That's what we believe. Atheism was enforced. There were no known Christians in Albania in 1991. I'm sure there were Christians, but there were no public known Christians. There were no gathering places of churches. And in a short time, there were 6,000 young believers in Albania because of the work of missionaries who had come in. But they were all young. There was no older generation of mature believers to help them along the way. There, was, there were no public, Christian publishing houses. There, there were no Christian schools. There, there were, were, was no Christian infrastructure at all to build on, to bring people to maturity in the faith. It was a reminder to me of how quickly a couple generations can happen, that this can all be lost. Well, the passage ends with a warning, verses 10 through 12. The Lord says, when you possess this land that I'm giving to you, and when you have your cities and your houses and wells that you did not dig and vineyards that you did not plant and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you have eaten and you are full and you have come to enjoy all of these comforts and pleasures in your prosperity, be careful. Do not forget the Lord who has given you all these things. Don't forget the Lord who has called you out of Egypt. Don't forget the lo to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and don't forget to pass it on to the next generation. Roger Kipling, a poet during the time of Queen Victoria and the glory days of England, uh, wrote a poem. It was actually written uh, on the occasion of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee, and there were all these celebrations and people just very heady about all uh, the, the empire of England and all that represented. Only he, he wrote a more somber poem, a more solemn poem, because he realized the danger, even though he himself had engaged in it often, of just glorying in the empire of England. And he wrote this, God of our fathers, known of old, Lord of our far-flung battle line, beneath whose awful hand we hold, dominion over palm and pine. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. And that's the repeating refrain after every verse. Lord God of hosts, be with us yet, lest we forget, lest we forget. Have we forgotten? Have we become cold and dull in our love for the Lord? My wife, my wife Sharon comes from a, a strong Christian heritage on her side of the family. I'm a first generation Christian on my side, but I always enjoyed going to their family reunions and these Christian gatherings. And she had an uncle, Alan, who would always ask me 
pretty much the same question when I saw him at these reunions. He would say, Dan, is your heart still warm toward God? And that was a good question for me. He knew that I was in full-time Christian work and doing mission work, uh, but Dan, is your heart still warm toward God? Or am I just going through the motions? Have I just become a professional Christian, a professional Christian leader, growing dull in my love for God? And I needed to hear that question, and I need to hear it, hear it still and ponder it deeply. It's a question that I think I'll, I'll put to Addison as the years go on in his new calling. So where are you in regard to this great confession and great commandment? Is it really in your hearts? If it's not in our heart, then we can't very well pass it on to the next generation, can we? And it's so easy to become fuzzy in these things. What about you young people? What about you students? Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? It's easy to become foggy about what we believe and where our life is going, what, where our affections lie and what we want in life, really. This is a gracious invitation. No better way to live, to invest your life. You'll never look back on your life if you live this way and say, well, if only I'd had these pleasures. If only I'd done this. No, there'll be no regrets in living our life in this way. Those of us who are church leaders are often busy about our serving and our spiritual activities, and we, they can become more duties than joys in our life. Uh, but God wants our heart first, our love first before our service. A couple of years ago, I had a small part in the play, uh, Master Arts play, Fiddler on the Roof. And, and uh, if you know that story, one of my greatest, uh, one, of, one of my favorite uh, scenes is when uh, Golda and, and Tevya, the husband and wife, are together. And, and Tevya uh, asks, turns to Golda and he asks his wife of 25 years, uh, Golda, do you love me? And she says, what? And he says, yes. Do you love me? And she says, Tevya, you're a fool. I know, but do you love me? And she says, well, for 25 years, I've, I've washed your clothes, I've cleaned your house, I've given you children. Why talk about love now? Do you love me? And she finally says, well, I suppose I do. And he says, I suppose I love you too. Well, God asks us the same question. Dan and Ken and Mark and Addison, do you love me? We might say, well, for 25 years, I've gone to church, I've given my tithes, I've taught Sunday school, I've sung in the choir. Yes, but do you love me? Do I have your heart? Because Jesus, in quoting the prophets, said, these people worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Is our heart far from him? The Pharisees were all about duty, all about burdens and ritual and legalism, but their heart was far from God. Do you love me? Let's pray. Lord God, even as we sang, you alone are lovely. 
You alone are worthy. You're altogether worthy. You're altogether wonderful to me. And so we want to say, Lord, we love you. We worship you. We want to love you more. We want to love you more deeply, more fully. Will you do that work in our hearts as we gather now around your table to receive these tokens of your love for us? In the name of Jesus, amen.